Father, we thank you for speaking to us through the Bible. We thank you that we don't have to wonder or make up or assume what reality is like, what, you, what is true, who you are, what you're like, because you've told us in the Bible. And so we pray that as we open it, you would give our minds understanding to rightly know what you're saying here. We pray that this wouldn't just be an intellectual exercise, though, but that you would transform uh, the way we think about life and feel and the way that we treat one another. We pray this in the name of Jesus and in the Spirit. Amen. Well, we are continuing our series on rhythms of renewal. So this series on spiritual renewal and the rhythms or patterns or habits that God gives us to bring about this uh, renewal by His Spirit. And so uh, we uh, have focused on prayer. We focused on God's Word. And this morning we're focusing on the Lord's Supper. And even though we're not actually taking the Lord's Supper this morning or next week, uh, that's actually, as I thought about it, um, fitting in light of what we'll see about the Lord's Supper, that there's something about the Lord's Supper that actually requires us to have self-examination before the moment of taking it, um, but we should think about our life and relationships as we approach it. So we have a couple weeks runway here until the next time we do this, and then next Sunday we'll look at uh, generous giving and how that's a means of renewal. So, here's why we're focusing on the Lord's Supper, because the Lord's Supper is a means that God uses to renew us personally and communally. So, it's a means that God uses to transform us both individually and as a community. And here's why it's important, Uh, because true spiritual renewal is not just about your individual change. It's also about transformation in relationships transformation uh, as part of a community. So think with me, what is the gospel, right? The good news from God to our world. Well, it's good news that through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, God is bringing salvation and renewal to all things. So what is this salvation? Well, it's both personal and communal, It's individual because God is restoring individual people like you and me to himself through the cross of Christ and the resurrection of Jesus, right? Bringing forgiveness, restoring our relationship with him. But it's also communal because God has always been about creating a new humanity through Jesus. Uh, He's not just about saving individuals, nor is he about just saving us in isolation. We're actually saved into a new family, into a new community. Uh, called the church. And so Jesus is transforming us so that we would enjoy um, a, what we call a gospel culture, right? It's, it's this experience together of a culture of love and humility and gentleness and peaceableness. It's a new uh, social ethos marked by grace. And that's part of what the good news of Jesus is bringing about in the world. It's not just good news for individual salvation. It's good news for community renewal, uh, life together, a family of God being brought together. Now, here's how the Lord's Supper relates to this. The Lord's Supper is a meal that we eat that both demonstrates and cultivates that kind of new culture. 
The Lord's Supper is to be enjoyed as a church experiences the grace of Jesus, the, the welcome of Christ expressed toward one another, the love for one another that's brought about by the grace of Jesus and the transforming work of the Spirit. And the Lord's Supper is itself part of the way that God causes this renewal to happen as we celebrate this. So, the Lord's Supper is one way that a gospel culture is renewed, and that's the insight in the second half of 1 Corinthians 11. So, would you turn there with me in your Bibles? 1 Corinthians 11, and if you're using one of the Bibles that's within reach under a chair nearby you, that's on page 958. And this text shows us that the Lord's Supper is a gospel meal that renews gospel culture. That's the point. The Lord's Supper is a gospel meal that renews gospel culture. Uh, The elders have been talking about a number of questions related to the Lord's Supper and will continue to in coming weeks and months. So, for example, uh, in light of COVID, we've started using very tiny cups and wafers, and we are looking forward to the time we can get back to something a little more substantial. We've also changed how we distribute it. So you now grab it on your way in. So we're talking about different ways to do this moving forward, like returning to something like what we used to do with it being passed out, but also considering trying new ways um, of uh, distributing uh, the elements. We're also thinking about why we use juice and should we include wine, which is what Jesus consecrated and the church used uh, through the centuries. And also, should we consider doing this, at least at times, during a full meal? Um, as it was uh, in the early century. So those are all good questions. If you have thoughts, feel free to let an elder know. Um, if you have thoughts to share, that would be helpful. Uh, but this morning, we're focusing on the heart of it. It's how, a go- how the gospel meal renews a gospel culture. The most important aspect of the Lord's Supper is not particularly how it's passed out, how big the elements are, and so forth. We, in fact, the key word for all of that is flexible, right? We need to be flexible about all that stuff because it's been done so many different ways throughout history and around the globe. Uh, But what the Bible tells us is important is how it shapes and renews us as a church. So, let's read 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 to 34. And as we read this, you'll see that the Apostle Paul is writing here to a church addressing a massive problem in the church. The church is eating the Lord's Supper without the gospel culture. And they were a mess, and Paul is lit up about it. So, Paul is even saying, you can't even call what you're doing the Lord's Supper. Something so essential is gone that you can't even call it this. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, When you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you must be recognized. Verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God? and humiliate those who have nothing. What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Who, implications now. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Verse 30, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we're judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for one another, or literally welcome one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. Wow. So first, he's addressing the massive relational problem in the church. And then he applies the meaning of the Lord's Supper to their relational problem. And then he shows how this Lord's Supper can actually renew them if they receive it rightly. So we'll just follow Paul's flow of thought here for our outline. Why we need it, what it means, and how it renews us. So first, why we need it. Why we need the Lord's Supper. That's verses 17 to 22. This is where we see the problem. Paul's writing to a church that actually has a number of problems. This is only one of them. There's no other letter in the New Testament quite like 1 Corinthians. And one of the big issues from the beginning that he addresses in this letter is divisions and factionalism among them. It's actually kind of shocking. You notice the beginning of this text where he said, um, and I'm not surprised because they actually are necessary at one level. I mean, there's a tension there, right? He's saying actually divisions can be important among churches because they separate who's truly converted and who's not. Because churches can gather together people who profess Christ, who don't actually know him, and a division can actually be helpful to clarify. Um, but obviously not always helpful. And in the case of 1 Corinthians, he's saying this is a big problem here, especially around the Lord's Supper, because that's when they're showing up. It's showing up among the whole church among when they eat the Lord's Supper. So their relational culture has deep problems here to the point where when they eat the Lord's Supper, uh, they're gathering to eat it for the better. And he says that you can't even call that the Lord's Supper and it, you're gathering for the worse. That's verse 20. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Now that's a really important statement uh, because they're missing something so essential to the Lord's Supper that without it, it's not the Lord's Supper. Now, that helps us think through what is essential for something to be considered the Lord's Supper. So that if you don't have this, you don't really have the Lord's Supper, no matter what you call it. And what is it? Well, it's not what some of us and throughout the world we've talked about being really important to be present um, or various traditions that develop. What it is is relational unity and beauty. It's a gospel culture. If you don't have a culture that's shaped by the gospel of relational love as you celebrate the Lord's Supper, then you do not actually have the Lord's Supper. Uh, you have an ugly culture eating some food. So that's at the heart of what he says next in verse 21 and 22 as he explains this. He explains that some people are stuffing themselves and others are going hungry. 
That's verse 21. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. So some are eating and drinking everything, and others are largely left out. And the issue here is not just bad manners, like some are just taking more food or getting first in line here. Paul says that this act is despising and humiliating some of the people in that church. So that's verse 22. He said, what, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I won't. So it helps to know a little bit of what this context might have looked like in the first century. So this church was probably small enough to meet in a home, and so their gatherings would often happen at perhaps a wealthier member's home. So some people had uh, nice homes, large homes. They could, they could house maybe 50 to 60 people in that house. So this church was probably able to fit in someone's home. And in the first century, the Lord's Supper was taking place as an actual meal. And so it was a real supper with plenty of food and plenty of wine, apparently enough for some people to get drunk because uh, that's what was happening here. So they may have done this every Sunday together. You get that, that sense in the book of Acts that people gathered together to eat on the first day of the week. But they're in the midst of a Roman culture that was uh, very class-sensitive and class-conscious. And I mean, they're actually class-insensitive in one sense. So very class-conscious, and the meals reflected social hierarchies. So it would have been natural for a host to have really nice food, if the host was providing the meal, for their wealthy friends. Um, or perhaps the wealthy would bring their own food to this meal, and people were supposed to bring their own food. That could have happened as well. And they would bring, bring their own great meal and feast of food and wine for themselves. But the result would be either way that the wealthy were eating a feast, and then the poor who didn't have much were either not served as much or as good of food, or they didn't really have hardly anything to bring, and so the lower class people wouldn't have as much, and perhaps even that the uh, wealthy people were invited into the dining room, which could be 9, 10, 12 people in there around a table, and then the rest would have to fit in the atrium, kind of the entryway open area of the house. They may have even been physically separated. Um, not essential to the point Paul's making, it's just that's probably the scenario we're looking at. And so this church is carrying out the normal social divisions of the time at the Lord's Supper. Um, so one scholar compared this to an airplane. So you have first class, business class, economy, and now imagine that we are serving the Lord's Supper around a meal in fellowship hall there, and we have kind of a first class table that's just incredible, and then you have a kind of a middle, middling table, and then you got one on the side that's kind of, uh, maybe they have to wait and for some leftovers, not that great. And that people are, you know, we've divvied people up just depending on how much you give. And you get to kind of filter into your line of how, how much you give or how close to an inner circle of leadership you are or something like this. Um, that's what it would have been similar to. And Paul's uh, pressing in on this particular issue. So in verse 22, he says that they are despising and humiliating those who have nothing. So the wealthy, the rich, the well-off, the inner circle are despising and humiliating those who don't have anything in the ways that that was happening regularly in their culture at large. And the word for humiliate here means dishonor. So they're, they're upholding prideful divisions that dishonor other groups of people. And this violates the kind of culture that God is giving us in the gospel. 
a gospel culture is a culture of honor and selflessness and kindness across the divisions that our world likes to notice, across ethnic divisions, across social divisions, across economic divisions, across age divisions. A gospel culture brings us together in such a way that we show honor to one another. And the Lord's Supper is to be a meal that of all places on the planet, when Christians gather for the Lord's Supper, that new culture is to be felt. But they're bringing the culture of divisions right into their church and the way they practice the Lord's Supper. There's a lot of ways we could be tempted to do the same thing today. There's a lot of reasons why people divide today. And we have to be incredibly careful and self-aware to see how we are being drawn into the divisions that whatever culture we find ourselves in, uh, the divisions that are getting created, be very careful to not let those work and seep into our heart so that we then bring those into our church community and we have this prideful sense of superiority over people who don't agree with us about COVID and masks and vaccines and some political policies or other divisions around uh, ethnic background and country of origin and age and wealth. All those can lead us to look at others with condescension. All those divisions can enter the church and start separating us, and we can come together physically and be miles apart emotionally. And at Corinth, these divisions were showing up in very clear ways at the Lord's Supper, and all of this was contradicting the point of the Lord's Supper. And Paul says, it is not the Lord's Supper you're eating. Uh, this is the World's Supper, and what you need is the real Lord's Supper. So what is the Lord's Supper, and what difference should it make then? So let's move to the second section here, what the Lord's Supper means. This is verses 23 to 26. So Paul just inserts and says, I'm just going to remind you of what the Lord's Supper actually is, what you're not doing. It's interesting, Paul doesn't tell them, just stop it. Uh, instead, he reminds them of the heart of the Lord's Supper, what it's all about. He reminds them of the key essential meaning of the Lord's Supper. He doesn't just say, you guys are logistically going about this the wrong way. Can we, let's just kind of work up some details here. Let's get a more a plan to share here. Uh, he, he says, the problem is deep here. You need to be reminded of the actual meaning of the Lord's Supper. And at the heart of it is the good news of Jesus Christ and his death for sinners. So the Lord's Supper is a gospel meal. It's a symbolic reenactment of the death of Jesus. And this is the answer to a problematic relational culture. It's the good news of how God restores us to one another. So we repeat what Paul says here every time we take the Lord's Supper. This is a summary of the heart of the Lord's Supper. So let's just read it again, verses 23 to 26 here. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Notice the others-oriented gospel here. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So this answers three key questions about the Lord's Supper. First of all, 
just what is the Lord's Supper in its kind of the way in which we look at it? Well, there's essentially two elements here, bread and wine. Some traditions, especially in America, used grape juice instead of wine. We have that started, um, you kind of don't know the history of that, that started in the late 1800s. Uh, in light of the temperance and prohibition movement, there was a Methodist minister named Thomas Welch, as in Welch's grape juice, who made alcohol-free wine for churches to use um, at the time. So it was bread and wine, and it was originally part of a real meal in the first century. Um, I think recovering this real meal setting could actually help a lot of churches embrace the heart of the meaning of this meal as a fellowship meal. Not essential, um, but it could be helpful. Um, it's a picture of true shared fellowship. So that's the first question, what is it? Second, who is it for? Well, it's not a meal for everyone. It's specifically for those who are united to Jesus through faith. And in the New Testament, there are two assumptions that are linked together with uh, that, um, that go right together with faith. And the assumptions are that you are also baptized and you are a member of a local church. So in the New Testament, people came to faith in Jesus, and then they were baptized, and really they were baptized by a community to become part of that community. So you don't baptize yourself, right? A church baptizes you. And so you're baptized, Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 12, that you're baptized into Christ and his body and his church. So baptism is a sign, not just of an individual um, publicly proclaiming faith in Jesus. It's actually a sign that a covenant community says, we give this person, right? You're, you're being baptized into this community by the community um, under the authority of Jesus. And so those always went together. And those are important steps to take before partaking of the Lord's Supper. Because there's a logical and natural order uh, in the New Testament here that we, we often separate these things. Faith, we've got baptism over here, we have church membership over here, we have the Lord's Supper over here, mix them up, do what you want, whatever order you want, whatever setting you want. But in the New Testament, there's a natural and logical connection, integration, and order with them. So first, you repent and believe in Jesus. And second, you then express that through baptism. Right? That's the visible entrance into uh, the community of faith. You express your faith in the baptism. Third, through baptism, you are being membered with a church. That church is receiving you as a member of Christ and His people. And then fourth, you begin eating the Lord's Supper with the church family. So you can think of it like a house, and you're outside the house, and then you believe in Jesus and are baptized into the front door. You enter the house, and then you go in, and you, and you only do that once. You don't need to get baptized multiple times. You trust Jesus, you're baptized, entering the house, and then you go to the dining room table, and you enjoy the family meal whenever they do it, because you're in the house. So that's, the, that's how they hold together and their natural connection. Um, so baptism and part of that uh, church membership and Lord's Supper is kind of the natural um, together. So, and with children, we believe that they're, um, the Lord brings children to faith at all sorts of ages. We believe there's wisdom in waiting, so we encourage children to cultivate faith and consider baptism and the Lord's Supper in early teen years. So third, here's the third question. What does the Lord's Supper mean? So what is it, bread and wine, who's it for? Um, those who have faith expressed in baptism, joined to a church, 
and what does it mean? Well, for me, the most helpful way to get at the meaning of the meal is to think about five different directions in which we look or in which the meal points or toward which the meal, I don't know what prepositions, five directions. Uh, each direction's here. Here's like a, a little mini theology of the Lord's Supper. First, we look backward and we remember the cross. Paul draws attention to how Jesus said the bread is his body and the blood is the cup of the new covenant or the, the wine it represents the cup of the new covenant, his blood spilled for us. So the Lord's Supper is a vivid picture of the death of Jesus being reenacted. It's a, it's a symbol, symbol of his death. It reminds us that Jesus gave his life for us. He died in our place at the heart of the good news of the gospel. So we look backward and remember his death. We also look upward and trust in Christ. So Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. So the meal is about Jesus. We remember him. Uh, so the Lord's Supper is one way in which we cultivate trust in Jesus. Charles Spurgeon, uh, the Baptist pastor um, from previous century, referred to the Lord's Supper like a pair of glasses. So here's what he said. He said, how do you use spectacles, glasses, to look at? No, to look through them. So use the bread and wine as a pair of spectacles, looked through them, and do not, I love this, do not be satisfied until you can say, yes, yes, I can see the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. So the bread and wine, use them as glasses you look through to go upward to Jesus and cultivate fresh faith in Him. Third, we look inward with self-examination. We consider whether or not we are trusting and following Jesus. Uh, are we living in a way that's fitting with the gospel? This is where Paul's going next, where he calls us to examine ourselves, so we'll consider that in a few moments. Fourth, we look around at the church family. Paul says this is done when they come together as a church. That's what he's addressing in this larger section of 1 Corinthians. It's when you come together as a church, when you're assembled and you partake of the Lord's Supper, uh, here's what's going on. So this is why we emphasize doing this at our Sunday gathering rather than at small groups or other gatherings because it's a meal that expresses our unity as a church family as one. Fifth, we look ahead to the return of Jesus. Notice Paul says in verse 26, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So this is a meal that we take as we anticipate the return of Jesus who will be with us. So this meal is an appetizer to the feast to come upon his return. And the feast will join together with Christ and his people in the new creation. So those are the directions that we look when we partake of the Lord's Supper. We look back to remember the cross. We look upward in faith in, to, with faith in Christ. We look inward with self-examination. Uh, we look around at our church family. And we look ahead to the, the coming of Christ. But the key question for us this morning is, how does the Lord's Supper renew a gospel culture? That's Paul's urgent concern here. So he exposes their massive problem. He reminds them of what it means to eat the Lord's Supper. And now in verses uh, 27 to 34, he applies it to their situation and shows how the Lord's Supper shapes us and renews us. 
So third then, how the Lord's Supper renews us. Let's walk through verses 27 to 33 just in steps. Um, There's a lot here, so we'll just take it kind of verse at a time. This is serious and wonderful at the same time. So Paul says that in light of what the Lord's Supper means, we have to eat it in a worthy manner. It's verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Now, Paul is not saying that we need to be worthy, especially not in ourselves or anything, but that we need to eat in a worthy manner. Massive difference. Uh, The point of the Lord's Supper is that we are not worthy. I mean, the Lord's Supper is for those, like a qualification for eating the Lord's Supper is you know you're not worthy, right? That's the point. Jesus died for you. You need forgiveness. Um, Jesus died for the unworthy. It's literally the point. So, and this is actually what the Corinthians were forgetting. They were acting like some were more worthy than others. Some of us get special seats because we're special people. And the point of the Lord's Supper, though, is that none of us deserve any special seats. Uh, the, the, you know, ground at the cross we've heard is level, right? That's right. And so the cross should humble us. It's an acknowledgement that we're all sinners, worthy of hell. Our only hope is Christ. And what a joy that we get in on this, free of charge. So when we come to Lord's Supper, it doesn't matter if you are um, an entrepreneur who's launched the best startups in America, one after another. It doesn't matter if you are a CEO and you've sustained your role for years. It doesn't matter if you have failed to hold the job well, or you failed according to our culture standards, you're fresh out of jail, and you're in debt. If you are trusting in Christ, you are equally welcome at the table. So Paul is warning them about eating in an unworthy way, namely thinking that some of us are more worthy than others and despising other people by asserting your social privileges and dishonoring others. It's a problem. And so he says we need to examine ourselves here, and that's verse 28. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink the cup. So this is why we always leave room for self-examination for the Lord's Supper and encourage you to prepare. Um, you, you know when it isn't on the schedule, it's the first of each month. We need time to confess sins that we haven't brought to Christ. And in this context, there's a particular issue that we always should be examining, which is this. Are we treating one another with honor in the church? Are you think personally, are you pridefully exalting yourself over someone else? Do you look down on others? Have you made someone feel small or belittled someone in our church recently? Have you become territorial in some way? Have you been overlooking people based on superficial standards? So we don't just examine ourselves individually in isolation, but how we are as members of our community and a culture here as a church. Are we setting a tone of gentleness and respect, or is our tone becoming rude and strident? Are we being selfish, or are we being peaceable? Are we spreading gossip, or are we spreading encouragement? So this is what he emphasizes again in verse 29. 
Some people think he's referring here to something mystical about the bread and wine when he talks about discerning the body. Um, I think most likely he's talking about the community as the body of Christ. The church is the body of Christ. That's verse 29. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So it's a warning to those who are neglecting the body of Christ, uh, perhaps of both ends, neglecting the real meaning of the body of Christ in the Lord's Supper and the body of Christ as the church family. It's a warning about receiving the Lord's Supper while violating its purpose through the way you're treating people. And then he gets serious. Paul says that God has actually been bringing a kind of judgment into this church fellowship to get their attention. It's verses 30 to 32. He says, this is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. So apparently, some people were getting sick, some people had died recently, and Paul's saying, this is actually what's going on. Verse 31, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we're judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So God is being like a good and faithful parent here, disciplining his children so they can be corrected. And this is serious. I wonder if some of you maybe have even experienced this at some time in the past. Maybe hard to tell if and when it happens, but it's not out of the question. God cares about a gospel culture in his church this much, and those who oppress and humiliate others, God sees it and sometimes disciplines directly and immediately in affecting health. And they get sick or even die. It's incredible. So Paul brings this to a conclusion by calling us to cultivate a culture of welcome. It's verse 33. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. And that phrase, wait for one another, can be translated, welcome one another. I think that's right. It's a posture of welcome toward one another, extending the welcome of Christ toward one another. So to bring this together, the problem is that this church Paul's writing to is not welcoming one another. They're instead reinforcing social distinctions that humiliate members of their church family. And Jesus has given us a practice, eating the Lord's Supper, that proclaims a different way of living together. It's inserted right into the cultures of this world to be an alternate counterculture of honor and love and humility and patience and gentleness. And he's inviting any sinner to come and eat. And he's calling all of us to cultivate a culture of gentleness and welcome and honor. It's the responsibility of every member of a local church to cultivate this culture and to examine themselves if they've been violating it um, because it matters this much to the Lord. The great danger of every church is having gospel doctrine on their website um, but not a gospel culture in their relationships. And so the Lord's Supper is a practice that Jesus gave to not only express a gospel culture but to renew it an opportunity for self-examination and spiritual renewal. So every time we eat it, let's be open to the Lord's transforming works. We're to be re-humbled by the cross, and then we treat each other with humility. We receive His love, and then we treat each other with love. We receive His welcome, and then we extend His welcome. We receive His service, and then we live lives of self-sacrifice and service. So just a couple final implications uh, to bring this together. So we celebrate the Lord's Supper on the first Sunday of each month, and so we're, you know, as you look toward the next few times eating the Lord's Supper, let's prepare for it. So here's some questions to ask before you partake of it next. First, 
Are you trusting in Jesus Christ? The Lord's Supper is a meal for God's people who have come to Him through Jesus. So it's a meal for all of those in Christ. It's also a meal only for those in Christ. So look backward to Jesus and His cross and look upward to Christ in faith and trust Him as your Savior, as your King whom you follow, and as your truest friend. Second question, have you been baptized? The order in the New Testament is faith, and which is expressed in baptism, and then connected with that, joining a church and partaking of the Lord's Supper. So if you have not yet been baptized, but you're trusting in Christ, we'd love to talk to you. So reach out to an elder or someone on staff, uh, send a note to the office, we'll get in touch with you, and we'll have notes um, in coming weeks about this as well, but let's talk about what it would look like to be baptized. Third, will you examine yourself in terms of your relationships as you prepare for the Lord's Supper? So as you prepare, consider how are you contributing to or violating a gospel culture? When people are around you, do they experience the welcome of Christ? Um, Would you say that others could point to you as an example of someone who's walking in humility with Christ? Are you someone who is fostering gentleness and a tone of kindness. So that's, self, that's the kind of self-examination that Paul's talking about here. Um, especially you welcoming people whom the world may say you have a step up on. Are you bringing yourself down, recognizing your low level at the cross to welcome and honor others? And then finally, are you ready to enjoy it? Because the Lord's Supper is serious. I mean, the Lord's put into death people in that church for violating a gospel culture when they do it, but it's also a celebration. Because if we're walking with Christ, if we are coming to him in faith, then he's just saying, let's, let's have a party together. Let's enjoy this. What a gift. A, a meal through the Bible is a covenant feast. It's feasting happily with God's people in God's presence. And so, to the degree that God has given us a gospel culture, and you're trusting in Jesus, then let's just celebrate this and enjoy it um, together. And not just the Lord's Supper, but just gathering together all the time, because obviously it's not just when we take the Lord's Supper that this matters, but it's all the time as a church. So, let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for giving us Uh, This fellowship to be a part of as a church family, thank you that Jesus has been given for us and given his body and blood for us. We thank you that you draw people to trust in him, and so we pray that you would cause us to look backward and upward with fresh faith even right now. We pray that for those who do not yet know you, that they would look to Christ and his death is sufficient for them, um, acknowledging that they're not worthy, but that you clothe them in the righteousness of Jesus. And we pray that moving forward as we continue to celebrate the Lord's Supper, that it would be an opportunity that you by your Spirit would renew us uh, to have a right celebration of uh, the death of your Son and the new life we have in him. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.